Hey, it's Matt Bowles. If you want to hang out with me in person, I'm going to be at the Latino Travel Fest in Elizabeth, New Jersey, May 31st to June 2nd. And I've got a 15% discount for you to join me. Just go to themaverickshow.com slash Latino. That's L-A-T-I-N-O. There you're going to see your 15% discounted ticket. There are going to be multiple guests from The Maverick Show attending, so you'll be able to hang out with all of us in person. You do not need to be Latino in order to attend Everyone is welcome. Again, get your discounted ticket at themaverickshow.com slash Latino. And as soon as you do, send me a DM on Instagram at Matt Bowles Maverick. Let me know that you're coming so that we can make plans to link up in person. And now here's a clip of what's coming up on today's episode. And at that point, it was like, Oh boy. If teaching is your background and you've now gotten the best possible teaching job probably that you could have for the lifestyle you want to lead and that's not good enough because it still doesn't give you the time freedom, the location freedom that you want, now you better figure it out. Today's most interesting location-independent entrepreneurs and world travelers. And learn the strategies and tactics they use to succeed. And now, here's your host, Matt Bowles. Hey everybody, it's Matt Bowles. Welcome to the Maverick Show. My guest today is Travis Sherry. He is the host of the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast. One of the world's largest travel podcasts with over 6 million downloads. And he is the co-founder of Location Indie, an online community which helps people leave the grind of the nine to five behind and create a lifestyle of freedom. Along with his wife, Heather, he co-founded the Haven Hospitality Group, which specializes in boutique short-term rentals and has earned recognition from Condé Nast and Airbnb for having some of the top beach properties in the U.S. Originally from Philadelphia, Travit is an avid world traveler and has now run his business from over 40 countries. Travis, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. I'm super excited to have you here, but let's just start off by setting the scene and talking about where we are recording this from today. Unfortunately, we are not in person. If we were, surely we would be sharing a bottle of wine and having this conversation in different circumstances. But today, I am on the west coast of Africa. I am in Luanda, Angola. And where are you, my friend? I am sitting in my home office in Wilmington, North Carolina but I am heading to Bulgaria in a few days to go skiing. And that'll be the first time I've been in Bulgaria. So I am excited to check off another country and really explore another region that I've only briefly touched before when I went to the Republic of Georgia. So I'm pumped for that as much as the actual skiing and stuff that's happening, just going somewhere new and experiencing new stuff. That's what travel's all about. The skiing is like the cherry on top. 
Well, let's talk a little bit about Philadelphia. I want to hear a little bit about your backstory, just sort of contextualizing your journey. And I have to say, man, I am a big fan of Philadelphia. I think it is one of the most underrated cities in the United States. It's one of the most populated cities, but I don't feel that it gets the billing of a lot of other cities. But then you go there and you're just like, wow, like this is really a spectacular city. It is also an unbelievable sports town. I know you're a huge sports fan as well. I am, uh, I am. So it's super fun from that perspective. But give us a little sense of what was it like for you growing up in the Philadelphia area? How did you come up? And then when you think all the way back, how did your early interest in world travel start to develop? Yeah, well, I love the love that you gave to Philly because I'm biased. I grew up in that area, but I would agree that it's completely underrated. I think it's starting to get its due in certain ways. Obviously, I'm very in tune when Philly wins any type of award or is on any list. You know, I'm like, yes, but I'm with you. It's super underrated. I mean, just drive up 95. As soon as you're driving up 95, it says Washington, D.C., you pass Washington, D.C., and it says New York City. I'm like, uh, excuse me. You know that the fifth biggest city, maybe six, depending on Phoenix, is in between and you're not even putting it on a sign on 95. Come on, guys. So totally underrated. As far as growing up there, I grew up in the suburbs, typical suburban kid upbringing, really had a great childhood, played a lot of sports, loved high school. That's what led me to be a high school teacher, which was my profession before entering entrepreneurship. Yeah, through college, like I didn't study abroad. I mean, I traveled a little bit to Europe. I went to London. I went to Paris. I liked it, but not enough to think it was going to take a hold of my life and be the thing that was one of the defining characteristics of my life. Until really, I went and did a master's degree in Ithaca, New York. And for whatever reason, during that year, I taught high school history for a couple of years. And during that year, I said to my professor, I want to go abroad to do this internship that we have to do. And she's like, you're in sports management. Go to the NBA, go to the NFL. The epicenter of sports is here in the US. If you want to be in these leagues, like, why would you want to go abroad? I don't know. I just never did. Something clicked in my mind that I was going to go abroad. So I went to Switzerland to work for the International Baseball Federation. I think FIFA for baseball sounds cool, but baseball is not an international sport. So the International Baseball Federation was way worse than working for MLB as far as prestige or anything. And I went there for a couple months, but at that point, I knew I wanted to work internationally. And I thought I wanted to work in international sports because I got bit with the bug during that trip because that was the first time I lived abroad. And it was only a four-month stint, but living in Lausanne, Switzerland, which is just up the lake from Geneva, and living a day-to-day -day life somewhere different was different than traveling. I had my little grocery store that I went to and get my baguettes. And we had this kind of villa on a vineyard that we lived in across from the lake. And I go swimming in the lake every day. And so that's what got me thinking, okay, you don't just want a vacation. You want to live abroad. And at that point, I didn't know I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I just wanted to get a job that allowed me to live abroad. And I thought that'd be in sports. It ended up not being in sports. But that was the first real big turn of the knife of like, oh, you're addicted. And I remember standing in the Lauterbrunnen Valley in the Swiss Alps outside Interlaken under a hotel that had all these beautiful plants hanging over the balconies. You guys have probably seen them. You're in a Swiss mountain town. And I just remember looking up at the mountains and thinking, I can't live in one place full time. If I didn't know this existed and now I'm experiencing this, how many more times 
can this happen in my life where I'm just put in a spot where I think, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this with my own eyes. Craziest story about this, Matt, is I know the hotel I was standing under. I was standing there thinking, this is it. It was like this almost come to Jesus moment. No joke, five years later, I'm scrolling through Facebook. A friend of mine, an Irish guy, says, we just bought a hotel in the Lauterbrunnen Valley in Switzerland. He bought the hotel that kicked off the travel bug for me. I was like, Stephen, you seriously bought that? I told him a story. He's like, I've got goosebumps, man. This is the best place on earth. I can't believe you were standing under my balcony. So uh, I haven't paid him a visit because that's right when COVID happened. So I owe Stephen and that hotel in the Lauterbrunnen Valley a visit. But you can't script that stuff. That a friend of mine who I met in Ireland bought a hotel and it was the hotel that really struck a chord with me. (laughs) That is amazing, man. Well, I also want to hear the story about how you met your wife, Heather, because you guys have been traveling together the whole ride, basically. So tell us a little bit about how that decision was made, because I have traveled with relationship partners and I've also traveled solo and it's very different and there's a lot of different types of considerations and stuff like that. So I am curious for you because I know that relationship got cemented early on in your travels. So give us a little bit of that context. It's interesting because I have very little solo travel experience. We met in college. We went to a small school outside of Philadelphia for college. We both were history majors, secondary ed and history majors. The school had like 2,000 kids. So every class, we were basically in the same class. Once you get into your track, we were in the same dorm. We had both transferred in. So we just became friends. And then at that point, we were 20 years old. And so I didn't have much travel experience, neither did she. So our travel life is really predominantly together. And what is interesting is, she wasn't brought up traveling a ton either. You know, she grew up in New Hampshire and Pennsylvania. So she'd go up New England for winters or for vacation. I'd go to like the Jersey Shore in Florida. So very typical stuff. And I think our love of travel grew together. She wasn't pulling me along. I wasn't pulling her along. When I went to Switzerland, we had traveled a little bit together. We had went and saw her friend in England and really had a good time then and all that. When I went to Switzerland, I stayed there for four months. She came for two of those weeks because she was working. And when I came home from Switzerland, I just said to her, that was an absolutely incredible experience. I want to do whatever it is for us to live abroad again. I don't care about what the job is. I don't care about responsibilities or like starting our careers. I just really want to live abroad. Do you want to live abroad? And she was like, yeah, I'm jealous that you got to have that experience. I want to do it too. And that led us to the easiest thing for us to do. We're going to teach English abroad because we're both teachers. We had backgrounds. We knew that that would be a simple thing to break into. And so we were looking Czech Republic and we were like, oh, we're going to do it in Spain or Italy, somewhere that we thought we wanted to go and we did want to go. And then we look at the numbers, we'll pay you a thousand dollars a month. I don't know if that's going to cut it. So we ended up teaching English in Japan for two years. My buddy had gone through the JET program, which is a good program through the Japanese government. So her and I moved to Japan and taught English in Japan for two years. We moved there two weeks after getting married. And people say, oh my gosh, you just got married and you're going to take on this challenge. And I was like, actually, I think it was easier because when we were there together, we had friends who were there who were single and it could be difficult. You're dropped into a foreign culture. Maybe other expats aren't around you. We had each other to lean on. Then we decided together to stay for the second year. And then after that, our second year there, we basically were like, what are we going to do? Can we lead a regular life? Can we go back to the U.S.? 
and kind of start traditional life? Or is that not going to happen? And we both understood that it was not going to happen. And so then we had to decide what that looked like. But it was cool that we both were making these decisions together and neither person was ahead of the other. Oh my gosh, I've traveled so much. You have to do it. It's like, no, we were experiencing a lot of it at the same level and at the same pace. What were your reflections on your time in Japan? I mean, that is about as culturally different from Switzerland as you can get. And I know a lot of people that teach in Japan, they don't put you in Tokyo. They put you in a pretty remote area to teach. So I'm curious where in Japan you were. And then when you think back on those two years, what was the impact on you and Heather of those two years? The two similarities between Japan and Switzerland, awesome trains that run on time and very expensive. Other than that, you got nothing. When we went to Japan, I will tell you, I knew almost nothing about Asia. We had never been there. We weren't around Asian culture growing up. Living on the East Coast, it's way less predominant than on the West Coast. When we got to Japan, we then met people from the West Coast, grew up in California, Vancouver, things like that. We were like, oh yeah, we learned Japanese in high school. I was like, what? It was like French, German, Spanish on the East Coast. And so it was just that their upbringing was so much more Asian influence than ours. And so that was really unique for us. We had no desire to go to Japan necessarily. What we wanted to do was go somewhere that would be a brand new experience. And Japan, let me tell you, was that. <laughs> and so when I reflect on it, it was an absolutely incredible experience. It truly solidified our desire to live life on our own terms. When we were there, we had both had jobs teaching. So we went to schools and we taught regular schedule, like 7.30 to 3.30. We had a regular jobs, but everything else was so new and unique that it didn't matter. Like we certainly weren't bored. Yeah, I could just walk outside any day and take a different road and not speaking language well, it would be an experience. And we were in a, a bit of a suburb. We were in an area called Hamamatsu. So basically dead in between Tokyo and Osaka on the Shinkansen line. So we were in a really good spot because we were in a suburb, still could get into a city. The school I taught was right on the border of the Inaka, which, which means the rural area. So my school was rural, which was nice to see, but I didn't live there. And then my buddy who lived north of that was the one who was like, I'm 45 minutes from any other foreigner having that type of experience. So much so that he then came live with us and, and commuted up. But we had a great experience. We met incredible people. We knew we would meet incredible people. That was another reason for going. We're like, anyone who comes and does this experience, we're going to be lifelong friends and they're going to come from all over the world. And sure enough, other teachers came from native English speaking countries. So we had friends from Singapore and Australia, New Zealand and England and South Africa and Canada, obviously in the US. So that was the two biggest things it did for our life was one, it really showed us that we wanted to be able to go abroad as much as we wanted to, but we did not want to be signed into a contract for two years again. And, well, and our Japanese one was one year, but we realized we wanted to travel and get to have these experiences, but we didn't want to do it working for another company, which, uh-oh, that meant entrepreneurship. Uh-oh, I don't know how to be an entrepreneur, but we knew we had to figure it out. The reason I knew that was the case was that I got a job offer at the International School of Rio de Janeiro, because at that point I was like, well, maybe I'll just be an international teacher. And every two years I'll bump around to new places. They get paid well. We'll get to see parts of the world. I'm good at teaching. 
and my buddy was teaching at the International School of Rio, I got an offer to be the 10th grade history teacher at the International School of Rio. They were going to give us a two-bedroom apartment on Ipanema Beach. We had Brazilian holidays and U.S. holidays off. I was getting paid like 50, 55K untaxed, like basically the best situation you could have to be an international teacher. And I was going to fall into that with my first gig international other than this one in Japan. So I was like, oh, this is awesome. And I just remember sitting, talking to Heather and we were both like, we got to sign a two-year contract. And we just didn't want to commit to two years in Brazil after doing two years in Japan. And at that point, it was like, oh boy, (laughs) if teaching is your background and you've now gotten the best possible teaching job probably that you could have for the lifestyle you want to lead, and that's not good enough because it still doesn't give you the time freedom, the location freedom that you want, now you better figure it out. And the second big thing it taught us, it really gave us was friends around the world that we could then go and visit and that would also then travel to us. And so we did that 2010 to 2012 in Japan. And out of our core group of 12 friends, we have since seen every single one of them in probably seven, eight different countries around the world. And they traveled to us, we traveled to them. So giving us that friend group that was now much more international and more of people who were seeking out this unconventional lifestyle than the people we had grown up with, that was big too, because we had a support system now of people who didn't think we were crazy all the time. Yeah, it's such an important distinction between being an expat that finds a way to live in another country, which is a cool cultural experience, but then you have a geographically restrictive situation where you're working for somebody else and you also have to be there to physically be present for the job that you're doing versus this concept of location independence where you can travel at will, live wherever you want for as long as you want and move around at your cadence of choice. And so I think that is a really important distinction to uncover. And so once you realize that and you wanted to strive for that, talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial transition. How did that go? Basically, when we were leaving Japan, we knew we were leaving August 2012. And I got this job offer at the International School of Rio at the end of 2011, and I had to make a decision, and I remember turning it down and then saying, well, what the heck are we going to do? And I had never done anything entrepreneurial before. I had thought about entrepreneurial stuff. I had read the four-hour work week, and so that had changed my mindset to what was possible, but I had never acted on it. And if I hadn't been reading blogs like Chris Gillibo's blog, which a lot of people aren't familiar with, and he's written a bunch of books since... And if I hadn't read the four-hour work week and some of those other ones that that kind of came about in 2010, 2011, 2012, that was like teaching this new way of living, location independence. And it was in the beginning stages. I mean, people had done it, but it was like the beginning stage, at least of my awareness of it being on the internet and people talking about their experiences. So if I hadn't been reading that, I don't know if I would have been as in tune, but luckily I'd been reading stuff and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to give it a go. So January 1st, 2012, I started a site called Extra Pack of Peanuts. And it was about how to leverage frequent fire miles, hotel points, credit card points to get free travel. Because I had been doing it when we lived in Japan. Well, I don't know how I'm going to make money on this, but I would have paid someone to teach me because it's now worth 10, 20, 50, $100,000 to me because I've got all this free travel. So surely if I can help someone who doesn't understand and I can show them the value that it'll bring them, hey, you would pay a thousand bucks for this fight, but you're getting it for 90 bucks. Maybe in between that delta in between, I could siphon off 
a fee. And so I started the site, didn't know how I was going to monetize it, didn't know anything about online business, had never taken a business class, had never taken an entrepreneur class, had no tech skills. So I was starting fresh, fresh, fresh. And I started the site and basically said, by the time you leave in August, 2012, if you can be making $3,000 a month from this, then that's what you would kind of make if you went home and just took this kind of entry level job. So that was my goal. Started doing stuff with affiliates and figuring I could make money through affiliates and started trading time for money by basically being a travel agent for people who had frequent fire miles and wanted to book tickets and didn't want to deal with it. We want to go to Italy and then we want to go to Spain and then we want to come back to the US and we've got these miles and I was helping them book their tickets. Very time intensive, but still making me some money. Was I making $3,000, Matt, by August 2012? Uh, yeah, I was, we were fudged the numbers a little bit, but I was getting close <laughs> enough that I felt comfortable. So I came home to the US and basically said, I don't know what we're going to do next. I don't know where we're going to go next, but I'm going to give this a full-time shot. And so I wrote an ebook. Everyone's writing ebooks. I spent two months writing an ebook. Assumed it would sell. If you write it, they will come. Not so much. Knew nothing about marketing, but started building up that business to a point where I was then one year in up to $7,000 a month. And most of my income was coming from credit card affiliates. I would recommend credit cards that, that were good for people. They would get them. I would get a commission. I would teach them how to use those points. So it was really a win, win, win until the credit card company said, Hey, we don't want you promoting those cards. We want you promoting these cards. And I was like, well, those cards are crap. I'm not going to promote them. And they're like, well, no, we want you to. And I said, no, again. And they said, okay, this is my 30th birthday, January 3rd, 2013. On my birthday, they said, well, we're just going to turn off your links. And for anyone who doesn't understand that, basically, if you click a link on my site and you open up a credit card, I would get a commission. They just turned it off. So now you'd click on that link. It would take you to that card, but I would earn no commission. They just cut me out. So basically $7,000 to zero with one person making one decision. It's my 30th birthday. We're supposed to have a party. I told my wife, cancel the party. I don't want to see anyone. I went out for wings. Well, not by myself because Heather wouldn't let me. She's like, I'm at least coming with you. I was like, I don't want to be around anyone. And I went out for all you can eat wings with her on my 30th birthday. And was just depressed because I thought I had done everything right. And I had stuck to my moral high ground and then had gotten put down to zero. So that was the down moment. But I just had to figure out a way to build it back up. And so slowly over time, I figured out ways that I could be in control of my financial situation. Okay, you build your own course. Now I can charge whatever I want. No one's going to shut me down. Do my own consulting. Build our own community to help people become location independent. Run our own events where we control the ticket price. Basically saying, I'm going to be in charge of all the products that I build now. And it was a long, slow road and I learned a lot of lessons. But that was our entrepreneurial journey in a nutshell. Like, took a big hit and I had to decide, am I going to keep going with this? You're 30. You're living at your parents' house. That was not the plan when you came home from Japan, but now you have no money. So lived with my parents for a year and a half, married at 30. Luckily, Heather was super supportive. We still continued to travel, but I needed about another year and a half to start building our business back up to a level that was even making me like a sustainable amount of income. I love that story, man. And I especially love the 30-year-old transition because that's exactly the same as what happened in my life. I was working in an office job in the United States up until the age of 30 when I unexpectedly got fired one day when I walked into work at the age of 30 and said, well, what am I going to do now? And I made a decision on that day. You know what? 
I'm not going to apply for another job to work for anybody else. I'm going to figure out how to start my own business. There's only one problem. I have no idea how to start a business. So I drove to the bookstore, started reading books on how to start a business, and just figured it out from scratch at age 30 how to slowly start figuring out how to build a location-independent business. I was actually quite fortunate because that was 2007, and that was the year that the four-hour work week came out. So one of those books that I read when I went to the bookstore looking for information on how to start a business happened to be the four-hour work week. I was like, that's what I'm doing. And so then I just went from there. But I think this concept of starting from scratch at age 30 and just building something entirely new is completely normal. I did it. You did it. A lot of other people do it. And I think that's really important because this whole concept of being able to reinvent ourselves and being able to pivot and having everything collapse and then being able to rebuild it all back up, I think is a really, really, really important thing. So let's talk about some of the details now as you look back on that process of building everything that you have built now. What were some of the biggest lessons that you would maybe give people if they're trying to build some of these same things? Some of the biggest takeaways from the types of courses, and I know you've done the Paradise Pack and you've sold hundreds of thousands of dollars of information products in a single year. Can you talk about what some of those success breakthrough leverage points and lessons that sort of came out of that experience would be for people that want to try to do that for themselves? Yeah, for sure. When we do challenges and when I'm teaching, I actually write out a graph and I show my journey basically on a timeline. When I was with my parents after that crash, I call the dark ages. I was very far from the triangle freedom. And so when we talk about the triangle freedom, it's a term that I coined. It means location freedom, time freedom, and financial freedom. When I was on my parents' couch, not knowing what I was going to do, I was very far from that triangle of freedom. And I was in the dark ages. And every pivot point that made me accelerate my growth happened because of two things. One, people around me pushing me and supporting me when I wasn't sure that I was able to do it. And two, I'm very frugal by nature, spending money on myself and investing in myself. And so I'll give you an example. The thing that pulled me out of the dark ages was I went to the World Domination Summit, a conference that was run by Chris Gillibo. And it was the third year he was doing it. The first two I had been in Japan. But I told you, I'd been reading his books. I'd been reading his website. I was like, man, this guy gets it. Like the way that he's talking about leading an unconventional life in a conventional world, that speaks to me. And so we come home. And I've been talking about going to this conference, right, for two years because we had been in Japan. We couldn't go. I'm like, well, I'm going the third year. Well, unfortunately, my business went from 7000 a month to zero, and I had no money. And I remember sitting there looking to buy a ticket at the dining room table of the house that I grew up in. And I was like, Heather, I can't do this. This ticket is 650 bucks. Plus, we got to fly out there. Yes, we knew how to use miles to get out there cheap, but we we're going to have to stay out there. Yeah, we could stay at a hostel, but all told, it was going to cost us probably two grand. And I was like, I'm making probably $1,500 a month right now, working 60 or 70 hours a week trying to build this business. There's no way we can afford two grand. And she just said, if you don't book that ticket, then never talk to me about this conference again. I don't want to hear it. It's like, okay. So, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to not talk about it again because this was my guide. This was my tribe, even though I'd never been there. It was like, I got to get here. She held my feet to the fire. She's like, we'll figure it out. Book the ticket. I'm not going to go to the conference. I don't even need a conference ticket. I'll come out with you. I'll support you. So I booked a ticket. I went to that conference. 
at that conference, I met Jason Moore, who we went on to co-found Location Indie, the Paradise Pack, Camp Indie. 95% of my entrepreneurial circle now I met at that conference or is one person removed. I went from knowing not a single person who was trying to lead this lifestyle, never having met a single person in person who was trying to be nomadic, location independent. That word wasn't even really around, but like who was trying to be location independent and build a business. I had not met a single person in real life who had done that. I had just started my podcast. I'd interviewed a few people, never met a single person in person, went there and all of a sudden had 15 to 20 people that I could call in that moment and do it. Jason Moore, as I mentioned, we went on to probably do over a million dollars worth of revenue since our partnership started. Another guy named Jacob Sokol, who when I came back, he said to me, do not record another podcast. Do not write another blog post until you figure out a way to make money. Because you're telling me that you're making $1,500 a month and you're doing 60 hours of work. So stop doing what you're doing and figure out how to make money. Simple advice, Matt. But I needed to hear it because at that point, my head was like, create more content, build an audience, this and that. I wasn't an online business person. I hadn't thought about it in the right way. And he said, figure out a way to make money. And I had had the idea for my own course in my head for a year since I had started this blog. And I went back and I built my first frequent fire bootcamp in two days, the day I landed after that conference and sold $1,500 worth of like that course in the first seven days and was like, okay, well, this is the start of something. Was it making me rich? No. Was it overnight success story? Of course not. But $1,500 to me then in seven days was way more than I was making. And so those relationships that I built then moved me to the next pivot points that happened. And so I can trace every single point along that journey. That was the first one that got me out of the dark ages. The second one was Jason and I launching our Paradise Pack. So a year after that, after we had met, we decided to launch a product. And we had to spend three grand on building a website. And I was like, no way, man, we can cobble it together. And he was like, no, if we're going to do this, we got to spend it. We got to do it right. And with his prodding, just like Heather, my wife's prodding before, we spent the money, we built a website. And that was the first time that I had breathing room as an entrepreneur because we each made probably like 15 to 20 grand. And I was like, whoa, now I'm not living month to month as an entrepreneur. Now I have something in the bank And I've seen the power of spending some money doing it the right way. And so there's two or three more pivot points along the journey, but it all came down to being around people who support you and having that network, whether it be spouse, whether it be other business people, other business partners, and two, spending money that I was afraid to spend and that lighting a fire under my butt to then make that money back times 10. Well, first of all, big shout out to Jason Moore. He has been on the Maverick Show, so Maverick Show listeners know Jason. Can you talk about that Paradise Pack and what it was that you guys did exactly? Because you went from a course that you created in a couple days and you sold it and you made a little bit of money, but that Paradise Pack, you sold hundreds of thousands of dollars a year of that. Can you talk about what that was and how you built it in a way that was so financially successful? I think the beauty of that was naivety. I just read a book and it's awesome. If anyone wants to get in this mindset, because I have to put myself back in this mindset sometimes, it's called Make No Small Plans by the guys who run the Summit Series and own a mountain on Utah and all this kind of stuff. 
I didn't know we were doing it at that point, but Jason and I just got together and we're so excited to do something with someone else versus doing it on our own that we just said, hey, we're going to reach out to everyone. And in that time, Sean Ogle was a big name to us. Natalie Sisson, if anyone knows these people, they were like OGs in the location independent space. We didn't know them, but we're like, let's just reach out to them and tell them we're doing this project. And we got a few of those people on. And now it's funny to think of them because they're good friends of ours. And we've hung out with all of them in person many times over. But that first year was just true joy and excitement to build something together. And we just reached out. We didn't limit ourselves. We did it together. And I think that was a massive benefit because both of us had done it only by ourselves even though we split up roles some, so we each didn't have to do it. But I think the biggest thing was just us encouraging each other to push more. I would not have spent three grand on a website, but I was like, Jason, I'm leaving it up to you because I know I won't do it. And he did it and it worked. I reached out to people that he was afraid to reach out to and we made connections. He reached out to people that I was afraid to. We all have these mental blocks. So when you're with someone else, if you're scared to do it, they're either going to push you to do it or they're going to do it because they're not scared of the same things you are. They don't have the same limiting beliefs. And so that first year we did okay. And that led us to be like, well, let's do it again. And it got bigger and bigger. And I think our biggest year, we did 350,000 in seven days. Obviously it was a seven day launch. We worked hard leading up to it. We worked hard after it, but it was very, very successful for us. And I think the biggest takeaway from that was that we were excited to do it. We didn't limit ourselves to how big it could get. We also didn't set too many expectations, which I think is important. We're going to do it and have fun with it and enjoy it. And I think our excitement bubbled over. It helped us make sales, but it also helped us get people involved because we were so crazy excited about it. And other people who came through were really excited about it every year. So it led to that ripple effect of when someone heard about it, like, oh, I've heard about that. Or I saw that this year. Or like people would come to us and say, can I be involved? This seemed like so much fun. And so we get away from that sometimes with business. And I'm as guilty as anyone when we get into the business too much. Sometimes we forget to go back to what's fun. Let's make it fun. Let's just try to have as much fun as possible while being successful doing it. So what was the paradise practice for folks that have never heard of it? What was the actual offer that you were selling? And then when you think back on it, what were the most effective sales and marketing tactics that you used that allowed you to do a $350,000 launch? Yeah, it was a bundle sale of products designed to help people become location independent. So when I say a bundle sale, it was a bunch of different information products. So sometimes I'd put my product in or Jason would have a product in, but really it was us finding, okay, someone knows how to do copywriting. Someone knows how to do SEO. Someone has an awesome product about solo travel. So we'd find the best information products that we thought people would need in order to build a location-independent lifestyle. So it was like half business, half travel. And we'd find these products and we'd put them together. And all told, they'd be like $5,000 if you bought all these products on their own. And we'd discount them 90% or more. So we'd be like, hey, for 500 bucks, or sometimes it was 300 bucks, but then the last couple of years, it was 500 bucks because we got so many good products. And say for 500 bucks, you can get all of these products together And no, you're not going to use all 20 of these products at once, but maybe you need this one today. And then as your business grows, now you need to know copywriting. Well, now you have lifetime access to this amazing copywriting course. So it was us saying, no matter where you are in this journey of location independence, there's going to be products in here that you're going to use. You're going to get them all in one shot. 
and you're going to pick when you want to use them. What made it so successful, one, was the discount. Two, was that we only did it once a year and it was for seven days. And each year it was a different bundle. So if you didn't get it, you were not getting it again. It was a one-time only thing. So those are like the marketing strategies that really worked. We also got in with Facebook ads when Facebook ads were newer and a lot easier. And those did pretty well for us as well, because again, time sensitive, scarcity, and a great discount. But that overarching thing that made it successful was we got really clear on who we wanted to buy this and what benefit they were going to get out of it. We actually sketched out a roadmap for like four or five different types of people. If you're already location independent, here's the products that you should use. If you're just starting, here's the products you should use so that people didn't have to figure it out there on their own. They didn't see 15 products and be like, what should I do? We'd be like, hey, you're just starting on your journey. Go to Chelsea's 21 Days to find your passion course. And so as we got better at it, started walking through our potential customers, walking them through what their journey would look like so that they could understand why this was beneficial to them. And on top of that, I think the excitement of our affiliates. So we did a live cast. I think the longest we did was eight hours live. So on the last day of the sale, or sometimes second last day of sale, we would get everyone who had a product in there, or almost everyone, to come on live, and we would stream it live, and we'd record it as a live podcast, and every half hour, a new guest would come on. So it'd be like, Matt's coming on. Now Benny from Fluent in Three Months is coming on. Now Nora Dunn's coming on for Fresh Hobo. Now Chelsea Dinsmore is coming on. So like all these people that they were going to learn from, they were getting to hear from, hear those people's stories in a 30-minute bite, and so people would come on for all eight hours. It's like a new age telethon. And we'd give away bonuses and all this stuff. And that just got people so excited because they realized they got to see the people behind the products, hear their stories and be like, well, if Trav and Jay can do it, and if Nora can do it, and if Matt can do it, and if this person can do it, and I'm getting to hear their stories and they started when they were 30 or 40 or not knowing what they were doing, then surely I can do it. And so that was the most fun day of the whole sale. And Jay and I would hold contests. Who was going to go to the bathroom first? Just fun stuff that we do for eight hours live. And when someone's on with you for eight hours live or they tune into that and they see the excitement, they know this is something I want to be a part of. Well, and it sounds like the other major benefit of getting all of those people to contribute their course material to the package is that now all of a sudden you have all of these people with built-in audiences yes. of the exact customer that you want to get in front of who are incentivized by affiliate commissions or however you structured it to market it to their audience so you have a direct reach to a massive customer base. 100% correct. It was a win-win-win for everyone because we would have never got in front of their customers. They were getting to sell a product that was a no-brainer if someone saw it and resonated with the messaging. They didn't have to do much of the marketing. They just had to put it out to their list and then they'd get a nice, healthy affiliate commission. So it worked really, really well for a long time. All right, I want to take just one minute out to put you onto another podcast hosted by my homie Chase Warrington. It's called About Abroad. Now, if you haven't yet met Chase, I interviewed him on The Maverick Show. That was episode number 189. And then he interviewed me on About Abroad. And I also published that interview as a Maverick Show episode. You can go listen to that. That was Maverick Show episode number 222. So you can go and hear Chase's story, learn about him, 
And then you can hear him interview me, which was a super fun episode. And then wherever you are listening to this podcast, you can just type in About Abroad and subscribe to Chase's show as well. He interviews some really interesting expats, digital nomads, and remote entrepreneurs who have some incredible stories to tell. So check out About Abroad. And now, back to the episode. Well, let's talk a little bit about the podcast, Extra Pack of Peanuts, one of the most legendary travel podcasts out there, over 6 million downloads. Can you talk about, first of all, for people that have never heard it, what is it all about? What can people expect when they listen to the podcast? And then take us a little bit on the trajectory of building the podcast and building an audience of that magnitude. Yeah, sure. If, you, if you've never listened to it, if you can't tell, I like stories, right? Whether I'm telling them or someone else is telling them, I like stories. And so it really comes down to stories from incredible people who are doing incredible things. And whether that's Heather and I, nowadays, it kind of takes two forms, whether it's interviews with awesome guests or whether it's Heather and I sharing more of our life story and having some fun on the podcast ourselves. Those are the two types of shows, really. Interviews and then her and I on the mic kind of pulling the curtain back on our lifestyle. And so that kind of came about a year into it. To be honest, I didn't have a podcast one week. I'm like, Heather, can you get on the microphone? Let's just have you on and talk about our 10 favorite destinations that we had ever been to. And she got on and people were like, oh, that was so cool hearing you and your and your partner. And like, can we get more of that? And then so it became more and more of that. And so now it's a little bit half and half. And we've kind of changed around and we do seasons here and there. That's really what it comes down to, whether it's us telling our stories or other people telling their stories, because that to me is the real linchpin of traveling. It's the stories that happen. We travel because when I land in Bulgaria in a week, I'll have never been there. So as soon as I get off that plane in Sofia, there's going to be stories happening because I haven't experienced this before. And so the way it came about was we were living in Japan as I mentioned, from 2010 to 2012. And I started getting into podcasting during them because I would ride my bike to school every day for 45 minutes there and back. And I needed something to listen to. And so I started listening to podcasts. And so I was getting really into travel. I was listening to this MBA podcast that I really liked, but then they only did one a day. So I'm like, I need something else. Surely there's some good travel podcasts out there. And I'd go searching for it. And Every travel podcast out there was focused on destinations. Here's what to do in Rome. Here's what to do in Florence. And they were good, but I was like, well, what about the stories? It's one thing to get recommendations. And we do recommendations on our podcast too. So I like that format to a degree, but I was like, what about the amazing blogs that I'm reading out there? These people have been nomadic for 30 years. I want to hear that story. And so I was like, I don't know how to start a podcast. But I want someone to tell these stories. So I'm just going to start a podcast. And so I started a podcast in 2013. We started the site in 2012, started a podcast in 2013. And it was really selfishly an excuse for me to reach out to all these bloggers and people. I read National Geographic and all these people doing amazing things. I just would ask them, hey, you want to get on Skype? At that time it was at Skype and talk about yourself for an hour and I'll record it and it'll be on a podcast. And like, sure. No one turned down a podcast in the day and age because there was not that many of them. And also it was a chance for me to selfishly get to hear their stories. And so that was the purpose of it. And, you know, it wasn't any crazy hockey stick curve of success. It was us doing a podcast from 2013 for a lot of years with a 
bit of a built-in audience already who are coming to our blog. In the beginning, I'd say, hey, we got a podcast and no one would know what it was. So that was a struggle. I literally on my website had like, here's how to download a podcast. Here's what a podcast is, explaining it. Be like, it's like TiVo, DVR, but for audio and you can put it on your phone. Oh, that's kind of cool. I can listen to it anytime. Yeah, it's like a radio show that you can listen to anytime. Oh, okay. And then people started understanding podcasts. So it wasn't any big, crazy yeah, oh my gosh, we got featured here and now everyone's listening. It was just a slow curve up and it's been a really important part of everything we've done for a while because it's a format that if you're listening to this, you know I like to talk. I enjoy. What tips do you have in the 2023 podcast landscape where there are millions of podcasts for building a show and growing an audience, what today are the biggest leverage points and the most effective way to build an audience? I think if I was going to start it from scratch, and this is advice that no one wants to hear ever, but I would niche down as much as possible. I would get super specific and ours is more general now. And that's because we have grown it that way. But for example, if I was going to start and I didn't have one now, I would take an area of my expertise and I would niche down on that. So maybe I'd be like, I'm going to start a podcast only on short-term rentals because I know if someone finds it, like I have less competition. And also if someone finds it and they like me, then they're going to listen, right? Versus saying, oh, I'm going to do a real estate podcast. Well, yeah. Okay. What does that mean? Right? Like I could talk about a thousand different things. So I would niche down as much as possible. And then I would find other people in your niche and or complementary niches. I'll use this example again of short-term rentals. If I was doing a short-term rental podcast only, I would find other short-term rental podcasts and I would be like, hey, let's go on each other's show because you might be putting one or two out a week. A listener might want five weeks and we might have different things and different ways we approach it. So I've always been of the mindset that a rising tide lifts all boats. And so Jason and I would do this all the time. We have similar podcasts with his zero to travel, my extra pack of peanuts. We do joint shows. We do like, hey, we're going to do our top 20 places for digital nomads, but the first 10 are going to be on zero to travel and the second 10 are going to be on my show. So like you almost had to listen to both. So we do stuff like that so that we get both audience does its crossover. So I would find people in your niche that have other shows that you like. I would get on theirs, have them on yours. And because people who like podcasts love podcasts, that's the thing. And they usually want more to listen to. And unless you have a daily show, you're probably not providing them with enough content. And then I would find complimentary shows. So if I was doing a short-term rental podcast, Matt, I'd be like, okay, Matt, what other real estate podcast do you know that might not be serving the short-term rental market might be a more general real estate one. Hey, can I get on bigger pockets? Because they talk about short-term rentals, but they also talk about the thousand other things around real estate. So if someone wants short-term rentals, can I go and be an expert on that and then get people to my show? Can I get on someone who's doing long-term rentals and do a debate show, the difference between long-term and short-term? So maybe if people will listen to that show who are interested in short-term, come and learn more from me. So that's how I would go about it is I would niche down as much as possible. I would just start doing it. You'll find your voice and overall, more than anything else, be consistent with it. Tell people when it's coming out. Because when we've stopped being consistent, that's when we've seen drop-off. When we've been super consistent, that's when the show continues to grow. So if it's daily, be daily. If daily is way too much, because it is for me, then be weekly. And make sure that people know when it's coming out, because that's how you're going to either increase your listeners or lose them because they'll be like, well, I don't know when Matt's show's coming out. I don't know when Trav's show coming out. I don't know when to tune in. Make it habitual for them. 
Love it, man. Great tips. And speaking of travel stories, I definitely have to hear some of yours because you and Heather have now been to over 40 countries or so. And I definitely want to hear some of the highlights and maybe a good place to start would be Croatia. Yeah. So we'd driven down the coast of Croatia. Awesome road trip. Montenegro and over to Mostar. Through that into Bosnia, up to Sarajevo. Visit a friend in Sarajevo. And then we're trying to get back to Croatia. Now, Bosnia is not in the EU and Croatia is in the EU. So you have to go through checkpoints. If it's EU to EU, you don't. If it's not EU to not EU, you don't. But you have to between those two countries. And so it was late at night. We left and we're driving. The GPS was really wonky. This was before GPSs were even really good. And we're driving. We're like, well, surely this will be pretty easy to go from Sarajevo, the capital, to Croatia, another country, a big country near it. Like it should be well marked. I shouldn't have thought that. I, I'd spent enough time in the Balkans to know better, but I thought it'd be well marked. was not. And we're driving and we just keep going up mountains on these worse and worse roads. Then it turns into dirt roads and you're pulling up to farms and you're like, oh, this was actually just a driveway. And so somehow we were putting in the GPS and we were figuring out how to get to Croatia. And we were going all these back roads and we get to this checkpoint and it was 9 p.m. at night and it was just a little guard shack and a barrier, like a one arm over across the road. And then there was a mountain on the one side and the guard shack on the other, and then a mountain on that side. You had to be on the road. You couldn't go anywhere else. You couldn't off-road or anything. And the road was just kind of a gravel road. So we're like waiting there and we're like, hmm, no one's coming out. And then we look in, we're like, all the lights are off. What's happening here? And there's no one there. There's just no one at this checkpoint. I don't know why. It took us so long to find this checkpoint. We're never going to find another one. And so that gate, the handle, the little arm only moved a little bit. So like we couldn't cross. The thing that held the hand down, the counterbalance on the other side, which is just like big rock that someone had somehow cut into and put on to hold, to weigh it down. And so like, I'm trying to squeeze this car between the big rock and the cliff. And I'm like, there's no way we're going to make it. And we have all the windows down and the rock is in the driver's side window. So it's like in there and I'm just like, ear, ear. I'm going to guess a 50 point turn because the rock had to stay in the window until I could get the back of the car around all this stuff. It took us a good hour probably to get through this. And I was like, we're going to scratch up this car. We're going to crash this. We end up scooting around this border and we we're so proud of ourselves. Of course, we didn't know, like there was a camera, but we're like, well, the camera's probably not on. And like, what are they going to do? Who knows? But we were worried. But we were also really worried that when we left Croatia, if they look close enough at our passport, they would see that we never stamped back in. And that's a big deal because it's an EU country. So they would be like, well, you left. You never stamped back in. We don't know how long you were here. It could have been an issue. It wasn't. No one checked. We got out of Croatia. But yeah, we snuck across the Bosnian-Croatian border. <laughs> Not because you thought it'd be a cool experience, but because we were stuck. We were either going to sleep in this car in the hills of Bosnia, and maybe this guard shack doesn't even exist anymore. Maybe it's been closed for years. Who knows? We had to do everything we could to sneak across. Well, speaking of passport issues, I also want to ask you about your experience in Singapore because I haven't heard this story either, but I will just preface this by saying that if there was one country that I would not mess around with, it would probably be Singapore because when I fly into Singapore, I remember this vividly. The first time I landed in Singapore, I landed at the airport 
and there is a big sign as you were getting off the plane in Singapore, and it says, if you bring drugs into this country, you will be executed. <laughs> so that is a country where I would not mess around with stuff, but what happened in Singapore? I mean, I didn't mess around with them on purpose. So we were taking our first location independent trip because we were done in Japan and we were traveling Japan to Singapore, Singapore to Indonesia, Indonesia to India, India back to Japan, and then home to the US. So this is when our contract of teaching was done in Japan. We were treating ourselves to a month long digital nomad, first location independent trip. So I did all my mileage hacking. We were able to stay in Singapore for 23 hours because that was a layover, not a stopover. Then we're going to Indonesia for a week and a half. Then we're going to India for three weeks. Then we're coming back. And the thing to know about airline tickets people don't know is that if you have an itinerary like that and you miss a flight, it cancels out the rest of your flights. So you cannot miss a flight. It's not just like, oh, I missed my one to Singapore. I'll get another one. It's like, no, now everything else gets canceled out. And I had spent months planning this and was so proud of myself. You know, we did it for 40,000 miles each. It was like a hundred bucks a person. This was like my coup de gras, right? Like, this is it. I am the man. We're going on this trip. We get to Singapore, have a great time with our friend there, run around the city, 23 hours, go to get on the flight. And I get to the check-in desk and they're like, no, you can't get on this flight. And I'm like, what? Here's our tickets, everything. And they're like, your passport is too full. And I'm like, no, 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 there's pages here. And they said, no, when you land in Indonesia, you have to get a visa upon arrival and you need a full page for them to put your visa on here. I was like, ah, here's my full page. Like, oh no, no, that doesn't say visas at the top. That says like amendments, I think, or something or addendums. It says, I was like, what? No one cares. This is just a page in a basket. Then I'd have pages with one little stamp on it. And they're like, you do not have one full, clean page for your visa. And I was like, listen, put me on the plane. I'm sure they don't care in Indonesia. I've been to Southeast Asia. No one cares. And they were like, nope, because if we put you on the plane, and you get sent back. It costs us like 10,000 bucks or something. So it was Singapore Airlines. So yeah, it wasn't even like someone I could barter with. Like you said, no dice. I tried sneaking around. I tried begging nothing. So I was like, guys, if we miss this flight, everything else gets canceled. Didn't matter. Go back to our friend's house. I'm all day on my computer Skyping, trying to go with US Airways who had booked it through and all these different people to get this changed and then having to go to US Embassy and having to like get new page in my passport. So I have my computer out at her desk. I'm making all these calls. Everyone's telling me to go to someone else. US Airways go to Singapore. Singapore go to US Airways. That's who you book. Finally, I'm like, this ain't working. I've been on the phone for four hours. This is not working. So I just Google Singapore Airlines. I go to their headquarters, which is in Singapore. Luckily, everything's close in Singapore. And I go in there. I'm like, here's the deal. I need you to rebook me on this flight through Singapore Airlines because then the rest of my ticket is valid. If I try to book it on my own, it will not be valid. No, 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 no. And I'm sitting in their headquarters and I just said, I'm not leaving this headquarters until you do this. I needed it, right? I'm like, I'm not leaving. And they thought I was bluffing. And I just sat there for hours. And the lady was at the desk and went to talk to someone else. They want to talk to someone else in a more of a back off. He's going up senior level. And they're like, this guy's not leaving. And he's getting madder. So finally, they sent me back to this dude in the back office. And I explained to him. And he just was like, did not want to do this at all. But he was like, okay, you've got to pay a rebooking fee. And I'm like, listen, I know where you're going with this, man. I wish you had told me this hours ago. I will gladly bribe you to get this done. So I'm like, what's the rebooking fee? He's like, you know, 200 bucks. I'm like, okay, cool. Here's 200 bucks. He hands me a printout 
with all these numbers and letters from a dot matrix printer, right? You know, the ones that you had to like take the perforated things off. I'm like, this is weird. Singapore is pretty advanced. Why am I getting it on a dot matrix printer? He goes, take this to the gate agents. I'm like, well, what does it mean? What should I explain to them? He's like, just take it to the gate agents. They'll understand what it is. I'm like, all right, well, I got not a leg to stand on here. And he's like, hey, the flight's in two hours. You got to get there now. And so I had to go back to, across the city to my friend's apartment, grab our bags, back to the airport, running around. I get to the airport. I hand this to the gate agent. She's like, what is this? I'm like, I don't know. But I was at Singapore Airlines. I had the guy write his name down, thankfully. I was like, can you write your name down? Because they're going to think this is fake. Write his name down. She looked at the name. She's like, I don't know who this is. I'm like, I was at the office. This and I like, I have no idea what this is, but she remembered me from the day before. She's like, I'm just going to let you on. Here's your ticket. I was like, thank you. Problem solved. Get on the plane. Go to Indonesia. Get to Indonesia. Rock up to the visa line. Didn't even ask. We're the last people in line. Didn't even ask anyone. This guy comes up to me. He's like, yo, man, you want to skip the line and get your visa? I was like, I don't know. Probably take us 30 minutes, 45 minutes. He's like, yeah, like 10 bucks. I'll take you to the front of the line. Get you your visa. I was like, I'm not even trying to bribe this dude in Indonesia. I told you I didn't need a full passport page. I was like, sure, 10 bucks, go to the front of the line. They put it right on that addendum page. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> here it is. <laughs> you know, I didn't even tell you that whole point. I had to go to the US embassy. I had to get a new passport. They wouldn't give it to me. I had to beg and plead them to do it in one day. Anyway, Matt, so we're in Indonesia. Everything's great. The tickets will be fine. I open my backpack, no computer. Because it was sitting on my friend's table because that's the only thing I had taken out to make the phone calls on Skype. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is my first location independent trip as a travel blogger. I have no computer. It's in Singapore. We're in Indonesia for a week and a half. I was like, send it to India. My buddy's a US diplomat. He just moved in three days ago. He barely knows his address, but send it to his address because surely it'll get there. So I don't have it in Indonesia. I'm like, all right, Big time location, independent, digital nomad fail, but I'll get it when I get to India. I get to India. It's not there. Doesn't come in the four days with my buddy. No word of it. She said she sent it. We don't, we can't track it down. Go on a three week trip around India. Great time. Still, guess not really a digital nomad because I'm not working because I don't even have a computer, but we go around India, have a great time. Surely it'll be at my buddy's house when I get back and fly out of Mumbai. Get back. Not there. No one can track it down. Fly home to the US with no computer. I'm supposed to be this guy teaching travel blogging and digital nomad with no computer. Get back to the US. Turns out it was stuck in customs. They wanted a bribe. Again, we would have bribed them, but it's like, just tell me you want a bribe, please. All right. I've already done this multiple times on this trip. <laughs> it's stuck in customs. This guy wants a bribe. My buddy who's a diplomat goes down there, goes behind the counter, takes it, but it was like, you can take this up with my boss because he's a diplomat. So he was like pulling that card, shows his black passport, takes the computer. And now I'm like, well, we can't send it out of India, Matt, because if we send it out, it'll get stuck in customs again. They'll want to bribe. So another friend of mine's parents are going to India. My friend in India and my parents' friends have no idea who they are. Like they've never met each other, but I put them together. They're willing to bring my computer back in their luggage to the US. So it is now December of 2012. I've been without a computer for four months wow. as a travel blogger and digital nomad. We get it back. Cool. This is two days before Christmas. We go up to my wife's parents' place for Christmas. I'm sitting there typing up something. My wife has a cup of coffee. She spills the coffee. It goes on the computer. It fries the computer and the computer is dead. So I have a computer for one 
day and it dies. Oh, well, I have just failed every possible way at this location independent thing. So if I can do it, guys, and that's my start as a digital nomad, surely anyone else out there can do it because that was my first five months of being a digital nomad and location independent business owner was without a computer than I had for one day until it got fried. So there you have it. That is incredible. And yet you've persevered. I want to talk about the incredible community that you have built and Location Indie. Can you share a little bit about the impetus for that, what Location Indie is all about, and the live event that you have coming up for people that want to meet and hang out with you in person? Sure. I told you guys, you've now known my life story. And I told you one of the big turning points for me to get out of that dark ages was going to a conference, going to an event and meeting other people there. And specifically Jason, who then we partnered with a lot of stuff and best friends to this day. And so when we did our first paradise pack, people bought it and they basically said, well, Trav and Jay, this is great. Now I have all the information I need to do this, but I don't know anyone else who's doing it. Where can I go? And we're like, well, yeah, we thought the same thing. And we just luckily found each other randomly at an event and hit it off. So events have always held a special place in our heart. But that led us to forming the Location Indie community after our first Paradise Pack in 2014. Because basically people were saying, I now know I want to do this, but where do I find people who are doing this? And so the Location Indie community is for people who want to become location independent, want to lead this lifestyle, or people who are already doing it. And to surround yourself with like-minded people in a digital community, we also do a lot of live events as well, but with weekly mastermind calls, weekly accountability calls, sessions on how to do different business stuff. We have Travel Talk Tuesdays where we pick destinations and people come on and share about a destination they know well. So it's built around this idea that you're going to find your tribe inside of this community. And so that has been going strong since 2014. So wow, nine years now. Uh, it's a community that's way bigger than me, way bigger than Jason. It truly has taken on a life of its own in an awesome way. And it's we've had people who have been in there for like all nine of those years. We have people who have just joined recently. And so it's there to serve the people who want to live this lifestyle and need to be surrounded by people who will motivate, inspire, and support them in travel and in business and don't have that in their regular life. Because I certainly didn't. And as you said, Matt, like when you started entrepreneurship, you weren't like, in this bustling group of entrepreneurs and stuff, anything like that. So that's the community. We'd love to have you join. You could join, you could get an annual plan, you could get a monthly plan. You can find all the information out about that is at locationindie.com. And if you get on a newsletter, that's the best way. We send out a weekly newsletter and then all the information when we open up the community again and the events that we're having will be in there. Digital is great. Virtual is great. In-person's even better. And so when this conference the World Domination Summit that Jason and I had met at was coming to an end because they announced they were going to do 10 years and then end it. And they have ended it. We decided, because an event is not easy to pull off, it's a lot of time, money, stress, and all that. But we decided like we got to carry this torch because it was so impactful for us that if we can do that for other people, that is one of the biggest legacies we can have. If people look back on an event that we run and say, you know what? In 2023, when I went to the adult summer camp that Travis ran called Camp Indy, like that changed my life because from there I met boom, 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 or I did X, Y, Z. That's the most important thing I could do with my life is allow people that opportunity. So we are running an adult summer camp. It's a conference held at 
an adult summer camp. Not a summer camp, then adults come to, but purpose-built for adults. So the ropes courses are adult level high. They will scare you. They scare me. You can water ski. You can wakeboard. You can do all these awesome, amazing things. We're also bringing in a ton of speakers to teach you how to build this lifestyle. So if you're someone who wants a bit more of an unconventional lifestyle and you want to break free from this typical lifestyle, or you have broken free and you're like, I need to spend time around other like-minded people. There's going to be keynotes. There's going to be workshops and stuff to learn from people like our mutual friend, Nora Dunn, who this will be her second time coming to this. It's the second year we've ran it. I will have amazing speakers, but we'll also, the cool part about it being at a camp is that you'll also have time to just enjoy it for what it is. And that is to go experience some awesome camp things. That's to go to the lake, to swim, to go on hike. But it's four days, three nights, two hours north of New York City at a place called Club Getaway. And the event is called Camp Indie. So Camp, I-N-D-I-E. If you've been sitting there saying, I want to build this lifestyle, listen to what Matt and Travis are doing, and I want to do that, or I'm doing that, but I want to get around more people in person who are doing that so I can build my network out. Camp Indy is the place to do it. It's going to be an absolutely epic time. We are going to put that link in the show notes. So folks can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. Just go to the show notes for this episode. We'll have the direct link where you can get more info about Camp Indy. And one of the things that I love about it is that you obviously have been in this world for so many years and you know so many amazing people. And so your speaker lineups are just crazy. So you mentioned Nora Dunn, OG, nomad legend, Ray Blakeney, I saw is speaking as well. Maverick Show listeners know both Ray and Nora because they have both been guests on the Maverick Show. Brilliant, hilarious, super fun to hang out with. And the thing that I love about your format is that oftentimes when you hear that this person is speaking at a conference, what that means is that you're going to be sitting in the audience. That person is going to appear from behind the stage, on the stage, say words, then go back behind the stage and then leave. And they've just been at the conference for 30 minutes and you heard them speak into a microphone, but that was it. At your event, you get this caliber people, the Nord Dunn caliber people, Ray Blakeney caliber people, yourself and others, and they just hang out the whole time. And you're doing these ropes course with those people and you're drinking with them in the evening and all that. I mean, it's an unbelievable format. Yeah. When we sat down to put together what we wanted out of a conference, and it took us years to figure this out, it was not that, oh my gosh, I want to go talk to that speaker. And then, you know, there's a lineup after they're done. And then it's that awkward interaction. Like, what do I say in five seconds? And is a person behind me waiting for their turn and this and that? It's like, I want them to come as speakers because they're incredible. But you're going to actually, like you said, like, Nora and I are going to be jumping off the bungee trampoline with you. We're going to be in the lake with you. We're going to eat s'mores around the campfire with you. You're going to get to watch Nora rock out to karaoke. You're going to dress up in your craziest 90s dance party outfits with us. It truly is an inclusive community where you're not just going to hear these people speak, but you're going to get to form a real bond and get to know them and get to pick their brains and get to form friendships with them. And that's one of the things that a lot of people at the last time that we did Camp Indy in 2021 came back and said to us, like, it was so amazing to get to meet everyone in person. And there was no exclusivity. There's no like, oh, speakers over here, attendees over here, because to me, everyone is an attendee. Some people are going to get up and speak. Some people are going to run workshops, but every single person there is an attendee. And that's why the people that come from our circle and we tell them, we want you to come and attend, not just speak. And 
In fact, they're all like, we're not going to come just to speak. We're going to be at camp. I'm like, oh, hell yeah, you're going to be at camp. So it's the people who want to be there and want to engage and want to impart their knowledge and want to learn from other people as well, because all of us are on this journey at some point in this path. I'm not at the end of my journey by any stretch. There's a thousand things you could teach me about real estate, Matt, that I want you to teach me about real estate. I'm just at a certain point in my journey. It's not the end. And so I come and I learn and I get to interact with these people. So if that's what you've kind of desired from other times you've been at conferences, like, I wish I could build relationships or really get to know that person. That's what's going to happen here at camp. We got four days and three nights. It used to be three days, two nights. And everyone said, we need another day. And like, all right, four days, three nights, let's do it. (laughs) I love it, man. Travis, let me ask you one more question and then we'll move into the lightning round and wrap this up. When you think back about all of the travels that you have now done 40 plus country and the experiences that you've had, how has all of that impacted you as a person and why are you still so inspired to keep traveling? What does travel mean to you? I think I'm one of the most curious humans on this planet. That's why I love having a podcast. I told you I started a podcast because I wanted to talk to people and I wanted to hear their story because I'm curious. And I truly believe that the way to scratch that itch is by travel. It not only scratches that itch, but it also, while doing it, makes me a much better person because the people I meet and the experiences I have, when I bring them back home, make an impact on who I am and how I interact with the world and in a positive way. I think it makes me more empathetic. I think it makes me more aware. I think it helps me when I'm struggling and sitting here thinking, woe is me to be like, really? Woe is you? Come on. You've seen some woe is me situations and you're not in it. It helps give some really needed perspective. And secondly, as a parent now, and as a father of two kids who are now five and three, showing them the world in this way will have an impact on their lives. I don't know what it'll look like. I don't know how it'll come about, but I just know getting them to see different things and making friends in different countries. And one of my son's best friends right now is from Argentina and we meet him every year in Costa Rica and he speaks Spanish and my son speaks English. Doesn't matter. He tells me Pedro's his best friend all the time because they've had these awesome relationships and we're going to go down to Argentina. He's going to get to see Argentina and get a different perspective at a young age. For them to be able to see that and then for me to be able to see it through the eyes of a parent versus just a traveler also changes my perspective. So I guess the big overarching theme with all that is it allows me to see things in a different way and have different perspectives that I simply could not have if I stayed in my home state. It opens me up in so many ways that I've never had anything open me up that way like travel does when I get somewhere new and have a new experience. So awesome. All right, Travis, at this point, are you ready to move in to the lightning round? I think the listeners are ready for me to move into the lightning round so that my answers are quicker. (laughs) Let's do it. The lightning round. All right, what is one book that has significantly impacted you over the years you'd recommend people check out? The most recent one is called Make No Small Plans. It's an incredible book to really help you just think a lot bigger than you're thinking right now. All right. What is one travel hack that you use you can recommend to people? If you're US-based, the biggest thing you can do to move the needle is figuring out and learning how to use credit card points, air miles, and hotel points to get free flights, free accommodations, offset the cost of your travel. As long as you have good credit and you're paying your credit cards off, there's no limit to the amount of points that you can acquire. And we've acquired over probably at this point, a million and a half points in the last 10 years since doing this. 
and just finding the right travel credit card and leveraging that if you have good credit and if you're paying it off. And if you're not and you can't do that, then what I would do is the next little hack I would do is I would just be flexible with your destinations when you can travel. And this comes back to the location-independent lifestyle, Matt. It's like, I can be flexible in where I want to travel and times I want to travel. And if you can't, then I try to start building that lifestyle now for a lot of reasons. But one of them is like, yeah, okay, I don't know. Where do I want to go? Do I have a lot of money right now? No, okay, I'm going to go to Bulgaria instead of Paris. Okay, cool. So flexibility is key for sure when you're looking for cheap travel because you can go to places that cost a lot less. You can find cheaper tickets. You can stay in areas that accommodations are less, what have you. All right. What is your number one tip for traveling with kids internationally, dealing with jet lag, all that kind of stuff? Melatonin milkshakes, man. Bring melatonin with you. If your kid won't eat melatonin because they're too young, like my son was on his first international trip at like seven months, we crushed it up. We put it in chocolate milk. We gave it to him and it worked like a charm. So to this date, that is the best advice I can give, especially when dealing with jet lag because jet lag is a big pain for adults. It's even twice as hard when you're trying to get your kids to sleep and they're like wired because to them it's noon. So yeah, make use of that melatonin. All right, Travis, if you could have dinner with any one person who's currently alive today that you've never met, just you and that person for an evening of dinner and conversation, who would it be? You want to know the first name that comes to mind? I'm just going to say, I don't know. Charles Barkley. I'm an NBA fan. Just a funny dude. And I'm sure he would regale me with stories. Yeah. I don't know. That just came to my mind. Like he would be fun to have at a dinner party. That is an amazing answer, especially being from Philly. It's an amazing answer for anybody, but being from Philly, that is an incredible answer. I love that. All right, Trav, if you could go back in time knowing everything you know now and give one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would you say to 18-year-old Travis? The biggest piece of advice I would have given would just be like, when you have an idea, just act on it. Don't be afraid to do it. It's cliche. I had a lot of ideas that I never did anything about, and then I read the four-hour work week, and my mindset shifted. Boop. Oh, now people can do it. I'm just going to start doing things. And I did start doing things. And none of them really took off and at least started ideating on them, right? And so I wish I had done that and been less scared to follow an unconventional path earlier. Now, would my 18-year-old self have listened to my 40-year-old self? Probably not. I was pretty stubborn. I would have been like, no, I'm going to college. I'm going to be a teacher. It's going to be great. But if I would have listened, it would have been that. It would have been like, don't be afraid to blaze your own path and go after what you really want versus what you think is safe. All right. Of all the places that you've now traveled, what are your top three favorite destinations you would most recommend other people should definitely check out? One is the Republic of Georgia. Incredible. The only scenery I can compare to when you get up in the mountains of Georgia is Switzerland, but it's like a much more rugged and one-tenth the price Switzerland. People are fantastic. Everyone makes you drink their homemade wine. Sometimes it's really good. Sometimes it's really awful. That goes back to everything's a story. So you have plenty of stories. Food's incredible. Pretty off the beaten path, but still doable. So the Republic of Georgia is my favorite, and I can't wait to go back. Second would be Thailand. I just think that's a great destination for anyone looking to expand their comfort zones a bit while being very, very easy. And then I got to give some love for my wife. 
Croatia, it's incredible. And it's a little bit off the beaten path of Europe. So again, if you want to get a little bit off the beaten path, it'll give you a little bit new of an experience without being hard. All right. Last question. What are your top three bucket list destinations, places you have not yet been highest on your list you'd most love to see? One has to be Antarctica. I just think going there because it's just so different from anything else. And for whatever reason, a lot of people in my life have been going recently. That's kind of new and fresh. I would absolutely love to road trip through the stands. So go through Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. I've never been. I think that would be my number one if cost was an issue. Antarctica would be my number one if you're talking about cost. Be like, oh, someone's going to pay for me to go to Antarctica. Great. But if you're just like, where would you want to go and be dropped today? And you've got two months to explore. It would be going through Central Asia because I've never been. And I'm just dying, dying, dying to go. I'll add one extra one on there. Middle East as well. I've only been to Israel. Haven't been to the rest. So I would love to spend some time there. All right, Travis, I want you to let folks know how they can find you, follow you on social media, how they can listen to the Extra Pack of Peanuts podcast, how they can become a part of Location Indie, and once again, how they can join Camp Indie and sign up for that and when it's going to be. Yep. So I'll start with the most time-sensitive one, which is camp. So if you're listening when this comes out, that is June 16th through 19th, 2023. If you're listening after that, Check out the website anyway, because the goal is to keep doing this year after year. So if you're like, well, I missed it. Well, check it out. We might have another one planned. That is just campindie.com. You can also go to the link through the Maverick Show notes. If you do that, we'll know you came through Matt. So that's actually, if you want to do it, go that way, because then we'll know. And that's super helpful for us to know. Oh, you came from the Maverick Show. Cool. Give you a little bit extra red carpet treatment, you know? So uh, you can do that. That's Camp (laughs) Indie. Would love to have you June 16th through 19th two hours north of New York City. Very easy to get to. There'll be carpools and things like that. So if you get to New York City, it's easy to get to from there. Location Indie and the community that we run, easiest way to check that out is just locationindie.com. We do have a social media team who does stuff really well there. It's at Location Indie. That's I-N-D-I-E. So you can check all that out. And the best thing to do there is get on the newsletter because then you know everything that's going. You kept abreast of everything that's happening. And then if you want to follow Extra Pack of Peanuts, That's just at Extra Pack of Peanuts on Instagram. That's where I play. That's basically the only social media I do. So follow us on Instagram there. And then the podcast you'll be able to find on any podcast player out there. It's just called Extra Pack of Peanuts Travel Podcast. Amazing. We are going to link all of that up in the show notes. So you can just go to one place at themaverickshow.com. Go to the show notes for this episode. And there you will find all of the ways to contact, connect with Travis and get involved with all the amazing stuff that he is up to. Trav, this was incredible, brother. Thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. I've known you've been doing the show for a while. I've been wanting to get on. Finally, we were able to connect so many mutual friends. So yeah, if you're a Maverick Show listener, you're a friend of mine. Come check out what we're doing. And I would just love, love, love to hear from people. So thanks for having me on, Matt. It's been a pleasure. All right. Good night, everybody. Be sure to visit the show notes page at themaverickshow.com for direct links to all the books, people, and resources mentioned in this episode. You'll find all that and much more at themaverickshow.com. Learn how Maverick Investor Group can help you buy cash-flowing rental properties in the best U.S. real estate markets, regardless of where you live. 
Schedule a free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com slash consult. Now you can buy rental properties with tenants and local property management in place so you don't have to be a landlord or a rehabber. To get your questions answered and discuss how Maverick Investor Group can help you meet your real estate investing goals, schedule your free phone consult today at themaverickshow.com forward slash consult. If you like podcasts, you will love audiobooks, and you can get your first one for free at themaverickshow.com slash audiobook. Whether you want the latest best-selling novels or books on investing, business, or travel, try your first audiobook for free at themaverickshow.com forward slash audiobook.